0: listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com
1: Welcome, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report and my humble and messy abode. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Questions for Corbett, that regular series where you write in the questions and I provide the answers. And as always, there are a number of ways to get your questions in, the most straightforward being to go to the contact form on CorbettReport.com, and leave your message either as a text message that you then email uh, via the contact form or you can record yourself via the SpeakPipe application and leave your audio question uh, to be played in the next edition of this series, but the best way to make sure that your question is answered, of course, for Corbett Report members, members of the website, please log in to CorbettReport.com and you can leave your question in the comment thread for this edition of Questions for Corbett. That will be CorbettReport.com slash QFC045. So if you go there directly, you will be able to, uh, to leave your question for next time. And speaking of which, why don't we take a look through the comments and questions from last edition of this series. What's your take on Assange? Where, as you might expect, there were a number of comments in that thread about various takes on Assange and WikiLeaks. Also some several suggestions for Latin American news sources for Sebastian. I believe it was Sebastian who was asking about that, and so I threw that question out to the audience. There were several suggestions in that thread, and a couple of suggestions from Duck and Animals Aren't Food about how to surf the web safely unless the NSA is after you, (laughs) which is an important stipulation to make. Well, if the NSA is after you, it might be a little bit different. But for general web safety, you can follow these directions. And there were some some, uh, comments and and, uh, tips in that thread. So I would hope you would go back and read that. And uh, now let's scour that thread for some questions from the, the Corporate Report subscribers, which we will answer first up on the program here today. And although... Usually I spent a lot of time on a few questions and really delve deep into them. I think we're going to try the opposite this time. I'm going to try to answer many questions in a not-so-detailed manner. So let's see how that goes and see which uh, style you prefer. The first question is from Joris, who writes, uh, Do you think the Notre Dame fire is a conspiracy or just an accident? I think it's an accident. And then there was some back and forth in that thread about, Well, why do you think it was an accident? Why do you think it was a conspiracy? So there was some of that in that comment thread. My answer is, I don't know. But I would like to parenthetically add that it's always funny to me going through the uh, questions from last time, even in the space of one month or so between episodes of Questions for Corbett, The whatever was popping in the news wires that particular day when that particular episode aired and seemed like the most important issue that everyone was talking about and, oh, this is world important issue generally seems to be like, a, oh yeah, I kind of remember that story by the time I get to it a month later. So <laughs> I'm not saying that, that it's not an interesting subject or that people shouldn't be exploring it. It's just, I, personally, I, I'm not following the day-to-day newsfeed And uh, it's interesting to me what pops up and what doesn't. Um, let's move to a question from Abundant, who writes, uh, hi James, what's your take on the attack in Christchurch, New Zealand? So speaking of stories that come and go, through the newswire. I don't know about the attack itself, but the response to that attack, I think, was a perfect demonstration of the type of crackdown on information itself that is coming and is possible. Um, Even at this stage, and even with decentralized to some extent, peer-to-peer to to some extent, platforms and alternatives, uh, it's interesting to see how, well, if, uh, if something like BitChute or Dtube or Steemit is providing this information to people and we don't want people to have it, we will literally block people's access to those sites altogether through the front end. So I've had people in the past month or two telling me from Australia that they can't access bitshoot.com at all Sometimes if I post the BitChute video on the front page, they can't even access the front page of CorporateReport.com. I don't know if that's still the case at this point, but it is, again, a demonstration of just how far they can and will go to suppress information. And, of course, right now it might be the uh, footage of some terror attack or whatever it may be, but in the future it could really be anything, including that evil Corbett report documentary on the Federal Reserve or whatever, whatever they deem to be hate speech or, or whatever term they throw on it. So it is interesting for me from that perspective. And of course, the, the fundamental point is that the video is still out there and it is still accessible if you know how to access it. But if you don't, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because yes, like so many other things, yeah, there are ways to do it and ways to find it. But if you don't it involves going out of your way, it involves knowing a thing or two and learning some tech and realizing that IPFS files, for example, are still out there. It's just they might take down the front front end of it that you access through the World Wide Web. But as long as you know the hash, then you know where the video is, that kind of thing. So this technology does allow you to, to do it, but it's not going to be easy. And that's the problem, because, of course, all the easy points of access will be taken down. Let's move to a question from Hotfoot, who writes, uh, James, would you give us your view on Chris Bolin's ideas about Israeli expansionism and international Zionism being a huge part of 9-11? Thank you for the question, Hotfoot. Uh, Well, we do know that uh, from the Israeli spy rings in the U.S., both before and during and after 9-11, and the dancing Israelis and the general Zionist bent of the entire neocon crew, um... Uh, in general, as well as Netanyahu's admission that 9-11 was good for Israel, which I think was quite a telling statement, um, that Israel was deeply involved in the 9-11 operation. And it was certainly directed... It's, it, Israel uh, certainly had a hand in directing the, the political and military backlash that occurred as a result of 9-11 towards Israeli uh, targets. I mean, the overthrow suddenly uh, literally the day of the day after the day of 9-11 we now know the uh, Pentagon was immediately talking about invasion plans for Iraq why Iraq it wasn't Saddam Hussein it had nothing to do with Hussein well obviously because Israel had an interest in taking down uh, Saddam Hussein so and reshaping the Middle East the Zionist plan for the Middle East that we've talked about before on this program so clearly they had a, uh, a large part in that and in the neocon cabal in Washington at that time generally. So, so yes, Israel and Mossad did have an important part to play in the 9-11 operation. Uh, let's move on to the question from S.C. Pat, who writes, uh, do your parents or other family members know about your work and what you discuss on this website? Uh, do they have a mainstream view of the world? Have you ever tried talking to them about your points of view? If so, how does that type of conversation go? Thank you for the question, S.C. Pat. Um, well, my mother did pass away eight years ago now. Uh, can you believe it's eight years? I cannot believe that. But uh, she did pass away eight years ago. But before that point, of course, she did know about the website and the work that I was doing. And uh, my father is still alive, and certainly knows about my work. And unlike many, um, whose stories I can I very much sympathize with, and I, I, I hate to hear these types of stories, of people trying to Uh, bring this type of information to their families and being rebuffed in various ways, sometimes harshly, sometimes gently. Um, I did not have that experience. I had, if anything, the exact opposite experience. When I first started getting into this and I showed some of this information to my parents about Bohemian Grove and Bilderberg and things like this and they just sort of said, "Yeah, we thought it was something like this." <laughs> I mean <laughs> it's interesting they uh, they were just receptive to the information and did not have much of a problem with it. Um, and honestly i think uh, well i I think they probably had their just their own worldview that they bring to it, and and for them it's not particularly surprising that politicians are corrupt and what have you, but um, I think that's also reflective of the fact that well, throughout my entire life, my parents were always incredibly supportive of me, and uh, without that support, that incredible support, which I took for granted when I was younger, um, if you have a great family, you don't really think about it, but uh, uh, because of that support, I think I've been able to accomplish what I accomplish, and so I couldn't be happier for the family that I have. And the family environment that I grew up in. Um, and yeah, so my family has no real problem with what it is that I do. Um, I, when I look at my friends in the sort of the broader picture, uh, there are friends of mine that agree or disagree to varying uh, extents uh, with the things that I talk about, but it's not a point of contention. Uh, we don't get into fights or, oh, you believe this, oh, you know, let's talk about it. I don't know. We don't get into fights about it because that's not what our friendship is based on. I don't look at my friends as uh, targets to be converted or something like that. No, they're human beings and I love them for who they are. And uh, we have a friendship. And so it's not always a fight. Uh, I speak my truth and what I believe to be the truth. But I don't, I'm not in a mission to personally... Proselytize and convert individuals. I think sometimes people get too caught up in trying to convert particular individuals, and I get that when it's your family or something and you're trying to express who you are and they're not receptive to that, that can be incredibly damaging. But um, on the other side, no one wants to be around that guy at the party who won't shut up about whatever, 9 11 or whatever it is. Um, I mean, there are times in which to raise information and times in which not to. And, I don't know. I think that's part of just being a a decent human being is sort of knowing how to do that. Um, so I don't really have big fights with my friends about this or anything. Um, question from Alexander. Uh, if I can leave my QSE here, James, yes, you're a Corbett Report member. So please do leave it in the questions, uh, uh, questions for Corbett comment thread. I wonder if you know Judy Wood's, where did the towers go and what would be your take on it? Thank you for the question, Alexander. And yes, you can find my take on it in episode one of Questions for Corbett. Uh, Q from Duck. Um, Has anyone ever found a similar weird bump in futures trades or insurance policies on the buildings before the 1993 WTC bombing that mirrors the one before the 9-11 attacks? For people who don't know, of course, talking about the 9-11 insider trading or whatever you want to call it um, with regards to the futures spikes and other anomalous trading activity that has been talked about and documented in several published peer-reviewed academic papers at this point, and I have talked about before, perhaps most notably in 9-11 Trillions, but um, (coughs) regarding a similar anomaly in put options or what have you before the 1993 WTC bombing, I have never seen any information on that. If anyone has any, I'm all ears, I'd love to see it, but I haven't seen anything along those lines. A question from Bart. Uh, What would our end game be? We have a rough grasp of the end game that the so-called elites have in mind, but I don't hear that much of how you view the perfect world. There are so many options I personally have in mind when it comes to how the world would look like if we succeed to beat the elites, but all seem to have their own flaws. Would you see a world that has an economy mainly based on cryptocurrencies? Would it be an anarchist stateless world? Would we go back to a state-issued fiat currency rather than a bank-issued one? How would you describe your ideal world. Alright, thank you for the question Bart. Um, I'm sorry if I haven't been clear about this in the past. Uh, I, I think I have been, but let me reiterate in case there's been any confusion. I'm a voluntarist. So my end game is a world in which my end game doesn't matter to you at all. And your end game does not matter to me at all. That we are free human beings who are free to live our lives in the way that we want and form the communities that we want. Voluntary communities based on voluntary interactions. And if that's the case, then I truly don't care what kind of voluntary community you want to form. You want to go and join... <clears throat> some kind of commune and start some worker-run co-op or whatever, awesome, great, go for it, power to your elbow, I'm not going to stop you. Or um, you want to go live in Democracyville and, and where everybody votes for elected representatives who will then uh, pass laws that everyone must abide by in that geographical area where everyone who agrees to that covenant has agreed to live, hey, you know, knock yourself out. Um, not for me, thank you, but if you want to do it, you can do it. Uh, you know, if you want to go to cryptocurrency land where only cryptocurrency can be used or only this particular type of cryptocurrency, you can go and live there. If you want to, uh, if you want some sort of national fiat currency, then, you know, you can go to that that, that area. Uh, if you want to go to you know, Ancapistan and uh, start selling personal rocket-propelled grenades uh, launchers or or things to grandmas for self-defense, hey, (laughs) go for it. Again, as long as all of those relations, all of those communities are formed voluntarily and you can choose to go or leave as you will, then I have no problem with it, morally speaking. It is your decision because, and this is the fundamental underlying point, I do not have the arrogance or the hubris to believe that I know how you should be living your life, and sorry to break it to anyone out there who thinks that they know how I should be living my life, but you don't, <laughs> and uh, no, uh, that is not, that, that is the basis for political problems, is people think I know how everyone else should be living, which, I mean, isn't just, it's not just morally wrong, it's also uh, factually incorrect and um, some epistemological humility might be in order. So start reading Hayek and start realizing that, uh, well, what's the famous quote? The economist's uh, job is to teach people that they don't know about what they imagine they can do. Or <laughs> I've absolutely butchered that quote. <laughs> Russ Roberts would be so so mad at me. He says it pretty much every podcast. But anyway, you get the idea. We do not there is no human being who knows how to order society best for everyone in the world. And that's, that's the ring of power that uh, people chase. Um, the idea, oh, if I had the ring of power and could tell everyone what to do, I, the world could be so much better because I could order it the right way. I don't believe that. I want a world of voluntary interactions where people can voluntarily congregate or disassociate as they, as they please. Speaking of Ring of Power, (laughs) what a segue. We have a SpeakPipe question, an audio question in from the SpeakPipe application from Michael.
2: Hi, James. This is a question for Corbett. Cecil Rhodes Roundtable groups were essentially kind of concentric rings of power that were seeded into different uh, geographic areas. And it's always struck me that I wondered whether you could make a comparison between this and the rings of power that were handed out to the peoples of Middle Earth in J.R.R. R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. There's also a couple of other threads that have kind of linked me to, brought me to think about it in this way. When I read this book by Dennis Rates, um, The Boer Journal of a Boer War, and it's an amazing book that is the only book I've ever read that kind of unfolds very much like Lord of the Rings, although it's a real account of his um, kind of participation in the Boer war against the British. And in the book, he describes the gathering of the Boers in Bloemfontein, the Boer riders. And I think it still today, it was the largest number of horsemen ever gathered in one place, about 20,000 horsemen. And it reads very like the gathering of the riders of Rohan. And now I also... I believe that J.R.R. R. Tolkien had a direct link with Bloemfontein itself and South Africa in more generally. So I'm wondering if J.R.R. R. Tolkien was to, in some way kind of leaking or using uh, Cecil Rhodes' roundtable system of control, the seeding rings of power into society f- as a model for his Lord of the Rings book. I'd be very interested to know what you think about this.
1: All right. Thank you very much for that question, Michael. And... Yes, uh, long story short, yes, I think there are politics in Lord of the Rings, and there is history in there, certainly, if you look at Tolkien's biography, and his experiences in South Africa, and the Boer War, and what have you, and and in World War One, I, I think that you can see that certain things have been encoded in Lord of the Rings, but don't call it an allegory, apparently that's <laughs> that's a no-no, <laughs> well... If you want more elaboration on that, I would pass it to someone who knows a lot more about The Lord of the Rings than I do, Um, specifically Andrew Hoffman of the sadly now defunct Revelations Radio News podcast. Uh, Back several years ago, I had him on the Film Literature New World Order podcast to talk about The Lord of the Rings, and we had an in-depth discussion about the political meanings of Lord of the Rings and what we can and can't read into it and what Tolkien himself said about such matters. A a really interesting conversation. I hope people go back and listen or re listen to that one. Uh, Let's move on to a question from Joey who writes I love reading Pepe Escobar. His May 9th article referenced Instex. Have you heard of or have any thoughts on Instex? I am usually kept up abreast of such international finance vernacular with your literature and don't remember hearing about this BRICS type scenario. Okay, thank you for the question, uh, Joey. And unfortunately, Uh, As I sit here right now, and I'm not going to look it up as I'm talking, but I I forget what INSTEX is abbreviation for. Um, But I do know what you're talking about. And I did reference it in an article last year about the death of SWIFT and the engineered death of the dollar, um, where I did talk about an idea that was being floated at that time, specifically by the German foreign minister. So this was, I think, September of 2018. They were talking about the um, scuttling of the Iran... uh, deal, the JCPOA, Um, obviously the United States pulling out of that deal and the sanctions that have been reimposed upon Iran and anyone dealing with Iran as a result of the US pulling out. And so Europe at that time was talking about, or the German finance minister specifically was floating the idea, well, if they're going to cut us off from SWIFT for, you know, cut Iran off from SWIFT or punish us for dealing with uh, with Iran through Swift, then we'll just create our own Swift alternative. For people who don't know Swift, the Swift network is a is a communication network that banks use to communicate internationally to transmit and uh, receive per, uh, orders and and settle accounts and trades. So it's an exceptionally important part of the. Um, banking architecture, the international banking architecture. And it's officially, it's a neutral organization, non-political, blah, blah, blah. But, oh yeah, back back in 2000, was it 2011 or 2012? Back during the previous round of uh, Uncle Sam sanctions against Iran, uh, they did get SWIFT to delist Iran. Uh, they put pressure on the EU that put pressure on SWIFT, and Iran was delisted from the SWIFT network. So it is a political bludgeon for Uncle Sam to wield, like so many other things. So Europe was talking at that time, late last year, about uh, forming its own SWIFT network type um, uh, alternative, shall we say. So I wrote an in-depth article about that. Uh, The money quote from that article is, in order for the new world order to rise, the old world order has to die. That is what we are witnessing when we watch Europe getting on board with the Eurasian agenda and standing up to Uncle Sam. So, I, I mean, Long story short, I think the various BRICS alternatives, including China's SWIFT alternative and Russia's SWIFT alternative, are just other bricks in the wall, if you will. <laughs> um, pointing to the new New World Order of multilateralism and everything that the BRICS represents. And of course, there are always those in the crowd that scream, well, that's a good thing. But I think ultimately it's leading us into the global system. Um, but lot more elaboration in that particular article. I'll leave it there for now. Question from Lucas. Where are the sources for your documentaries and reports? I know sometimes I see them on the reports, but I wanted to make sure I got the sources for the documentaries for sure. Thank you for the question, Lucas. And the answer is, they are right here on corporatereport.com for all of the uh, the things that I do. You will find a link to the show notes. Uh, it depends on where you're watching it or how you're, you're imbibing this. So if you're watching it on... Well if you're watching the video version of most of my main podcasts and, and those types of documentary style reports there will generally be a lower third on the screen at some point that says something like transcript and sources and then it gives you an, a direct URL so transcript and sources corbettreport.com/ big oil or whatever so generally that it, it will be on screen for, for most of my documentaries um, even if it isn't even for any including this edition of questions for Corbett if you're watching this on Heaven Forfend tube, or uh, BitChute or DTube or anywhere else, there will be a link in the description box for the video, show notes, and it will give you the link to this edition of Questions for Corbett where it will take you directly to the website where you can see all the show notes. And it, as you know by now, I hope, everything I do, I always put all the sources for all the articles and whatever else I cite, the videos and everything else will be there. So it's always there and it's always pretty easy to find, I think. Um, it should always be there in the description of any video you're watching, at the very least. Okay, uh, let's move on to a question from Adora, uh, who writes, uh, no sorry, uh, a question from Adora via the SpeakPipe application.
2: <laughs> Hi James, uh, one question, how can people believe that they can be pro freedom and pro forced vaccines at the same time most of us know that this they're using the vaccines to take away our free speech um, but this hypocrisy is ridiculous how do you how can, how can one explain to someone how They can't be both those things at the same time. Thank you.
1: Thank you for that, Dora. Very, very good question. And it's one that I have myself. Um, Specifically about how the concept of mandatory vaccinations obviously rubs up against health freedom, which I think is a key goal of mine and something that I advocate for is that your body is yours and you get to choose what happens to it. Obviously not in the case of mandatory vaccinations, in the case of fluoridation of the water supply, in the case of adding lithium to the water supply and other things they're talking about. Well, we put fluoride in there, we might as well put lithium in. We can reduce suicides. We can start medicating the population en masse in these random uncontrolled tr- trials where we can't really tell the effects on the masses in general, but we'll just do it. And don't worry, you'll, you'll thank us for it later. Um, obviously, I'm not, I'm not a fan of that. And this is, Something that I addressed quite specifically, and I hope with some degree of information and informative detail in an edition of Corbett Report Radio, several years ago now, with Alan Phillips' JD, where we talked about um, mandatory vaccinations and how to avoid them.
3: Now, I think every state should have a philosophical exemption. In fact, I don't think vaccines should ever be mandated at all, and I can give you a long list of (laughs) reasons why I feel that's the case. Um, Not the least of which, and perhaps the most simple and direct, is is the reality that vaccines can and do cause permanent disability and death. And nobody can tell you if you or your child will be the next victim of a vaccine. Um, So just right there... Uh, uh, it seems to me that no one should ever be absolutely required uh, to take a vaccine uh, with like that kind Like no one should of,
1: uh, be required to play Russian roulette, no matter how many empty chambers there are in the gun. <laughs>
3: that's a really good way to put it. I may quote you on that, if I may. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> it's, that's a real nice, real nice analogy. I like that. Um, And, of course, we're told over and over again, well, it's a net benefit. This is the price we pay for the wonderful, you know, millions of people saved by vaccines. But uh, uh, the reality is that both the FDA and CDC, among other uh, uh, people and, and agencies and entities, have told us in recent years that 90 to 99% of vaccine adverse events are never even reported. So there's no data available for anybody to calculate whether there's a net benefit from vaccines. We just, we don't know.
1: If you haven't seen or heard that conversation before, I will obviously put the link in the show notes. I hope you will go and refamiliarize yourself with it because it's an important one and an interesting one. Alan Phillips at VaccineRights.com being a lawyer who specializes in uh, vaccine law in the United States specifically and has an authoritative guide on vaccine exemptions and how to go about getting them, um, again, in the United States specifically. But our conversation talked about the principles and philosophy behind the idea of mandatory vaccinations and what they really mean. So if you missed that in the archives, I would suggest you go back and take another look. Uh, Let's move on to a question from Ben. (laughs) James, I wonder what you make of the distinctive lack of coverage about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in the West. I follow this topic now for many years and was set thinking when there was next to no coverage a year and some ago when both India and Pakistan simultaneously joined. I thought this was a highly pivotal and momentous event for many, many reasons. All right. Thank you for the question, Ben. Ben. Uh, I I tend to agree with you. I have covered the Shanghai Cooperation Organization a few times on the podcast in the past. And, in fact, I also did write an editorial specifically when India and China... uh, Sorry, India and Pakistan both joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization together as full-fledged members. I did write an uh, editorial, Strange Bedfellows, the India-Pakistan-China Triangle. So I I agree, it was a pretty important event. But... Then again, there may be the tendency to overblow the importance of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is sometimes framed as something of a kind of counter NATO, counterbalance or something. I'm not sure it's quite as glorious as that, or it's not as, as much of a developed uh, institution as NATO is, un- unfortunately, I suppose, or uh, depending how you look at it. But uh, it is not exactly, it's certainly not a exclusively military type of comp- compact like NATO is. And it's not particularly effective at anything, perhaps other than opening some sort of dialogue between the member nations. But even then, you will note that it didn't seem to have much of an effect, if any at all, on damping down tensions in Kashmir, for example, which have recently flared and shots exchanged and things like that on the brink of some sort of conflagration, potentially nuclear, in the region. So tensions are still high. Um, there is still a lot of soreness about the uh, uh, China-Pakistan economic corridor and uh, how that's going to be developed and whether that will economically try to decide the political boundaries of Kashmir and what have you. So there's still a lot of tension there and uh, I'm not sure just the fact that they joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization together is going to ease that tension. But it is something that uh, I think more people should at least be aware of. Um, So if there is any interesting news on the sco front i hope people will send it in and i will definitely keep my eye on it okay let's move to uh today's question for you as you know at the end of these episodes i generally like to turn one of the questions around to the audience to open it up and for discussion and this time we have a question in from ian via the speakpipe application
0: hi james really appreciate everything you do um, I just wanted to ask, given your recent response to Jason's question about how to protect your computer against uh, possible um, spying, um, how have you got any thoughts about how to protect your content um, especially for you know for those uh, sort of independent bloggers that are out there? Um, I've been looking at solutions of how to do this. Um, and I'm tr- my current thoughts are to put as much content as possible on a the a blockchain-based platform, and the best one I'm aware of is Steemit. Um, but I realise that that's also got problems in that it is, to some extent, centrally controlled. Uh, I was also really interested in Dan Dick's recent discussions about um, the IPFS-based Pocketbook app. Uh, so I was kind of wondering if putting... Uh, as much content as possible on Steam it, uh, and then possibly having a page on Pocketbook that links to that content would be a reasonable way to protect your content. Um, I just wondered if you've got any thoughts on that or if you're aware of any better solutions or if you can suggest any uh, alternatives. Anyway, thanks ever so much for everything you do. Really appreciate it. Um, all the best. Take care. Thanks. Bye.
1: Thank you for the question, Ian, and just as a note, Ian did write in after sending that uh, that audio message just to say when he said pocketbook, he meant pocketnet. Um, but yes, uh, Steemit is an answer, as are all of the al- alternatives that I've mentioned in the past. Um, the social media alternatives that I mentioned in the social media alternatives series. Um, there are many options out there. Um, Currently, I'm most excited about the IPFS mirror of corporatereport.com, which Ernie Hancock has put together at uh, for f- from freedomsphoenix.com. I'll put the link to the IPFS version of the website in the notes uh, for your perusal. It is not lightning fast at this point, but it is up there forever. As long as you have the hash, you have the corporate report, at least as it stands today, and that is being continually refreshed and recompiled. Um, on Ernie's side, and he has some other people working on it, and uh, as I say, as I said at the time, and as uh, I'm going to reiterate here, uh, as we develop and iron out the kinks in it and get the, uh, the process streamlined, I'm going to have more information about this and how you can set up your own node to help preserve the corporate report forever and always. Nothing they can do to take it down. Um, so that's pretty exciting. Um, but there's... Uh, uh, there's Lots of ideas out there and lots of different ones coming on every single day that I can't even keep up with them. So I'm going to open this question up to the audience. If you know of other platforms or other ideas or other uh, networks or other um, things that are coming up or popping online that you think are helpful for getting around um, censorship or suppression, Uh, Let's not always frame this as outright censorship. What YouTube and places like that are doing right now, Facebook and others, is not necessarily outright banning people, although they engage in that too, but sometimes it's just algorithmically ghostifying people Getting harder and harder to find corporate report videos. At some point, they'll stop recommending them altogether. At some point, they you may not even be able to search for them. So uh, they're they're tinkering behind the scenes, and they will ghost those people that they don't want you to know about so much. And that's not censorship in the banning sense, but it is suppression, um, which is an equally important and uh, dangerous threat. So so what are the ways around that type of suppression? And uh, I'm open to Any and all suggestions, I hope you will write in with yours and with your questions. Once again, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again next time.
0: The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial. Recommended reading and viewing. Discounts on Corbett Report DVDs and, once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.